The Mod Squad is a great group of supporters of the Masters of Divinity podcast. I, Sliders I, I love... is a very underrated show from the 90s. They should have never replaced Quinn Mallory. John Reese Davies should have stayed on the show. And Kari Wara is a terrible actress. Okay, I'm glad everyone has joined us today. Uh, this is Masters of Divinity. I'm your moderator, JP. I'm here at Father Chuck. What's up? And, um, you know, we decided to record this episode the day after the inauguration. Uh, things are going well right now, um, but just in case another national emergency happens, we thought we'd go ahead and bang one out pretty quickly. Um, because, personally... I don't know about you, Chuck. I'm a little tired of the national stage being torn away from us. I understand we have national pain every now and then. But what about the podcaster's pain? The right. pain of doing 500 sit-ups a day. We are, we are white men with beards <laughs> and important thoughts that have to be shared. Yes. Very important thoughts about the Karate Kid saga. Yes. <laughs> I love that that's like the range of our show. Like, some people would make fun of that. That last week we were talking about Cobra Kai. This week, we're going to talk about moral panic. <laughs> but you know what? That's why I like us. Yes. And if people are going to make fun of us, uh, I'll laugh with you because I think it's ridiculous too. Oh, totally. Absolutely. That's why why, uh, why have a podcast that... if you couldn't do that? Right. You don't, don't for a moment think that I am not also aware of the fact that it is ridiculous that I have a pen, a Batman Returns pencil case full of micro machines sitting in my office. Yeah. And I have got... it there because if people come in my office, they look around at tchotchkes and they're like, what's going on there? And it's like, it's a conversation piece. That's why it's there. I've got Godzilla toys. I've got my avatar, uh, you know, by Navi. I've got icons and all kinds of stuff in here. Yeah. Comic books, video games. I, I kind of, I, I try to do the same thing. I've got the old man here. I love the old man of the sea. And I got my, my goth pumpkin back here. Nevermore, quote the raven. Yeah. I've got a I've got a Lego priest that I made. <laughs> this is kind of like that scene in Jaws, but instead of like scars, scars. we're just, <laughs> just showing our, our tchotchkes and conversation pieces. I have I have a Lego Ice Planet guy that was me. Me and my friend Scott used to play Legos together, and this was me when I would play with Scott. So I've got my Lego avatar here. Cool stuff. Yeah. Sorry, All this right. is ridiculous. It's fine. Hey, you know what else is ridiculous, Chuck? Are you going to say moral panics? I'm going to say moral panics. <laughs> and I'm, I'm tired of this because we got to stop this. Because you know what? I got to say something, Chuck. When I was researching this, <laughs> um, and I, I have sort of like an, the anatomy of a moral panic. When I was researching moral panic, I approached it as like a phenomenon that occasionally happens. But the more I researched it, the more I learned that it's not like the Super Bowl. There's like one moral panic a year. No, this is like baked into our media now, our news cycle. Like it's almost as if our entire national conversation can't happen unless there's like panic involved. Well, I mean, you think about in a sense, right? It goes back to the earliest days of, of 
the United States, right? The Salem witch trials is a moral panic. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, you've got the flappers. You've got women riding bicycles. It's all moral panics. But like I said, it's it's like nowadays, there's like a moral panic every day. And the moral panic language and tactics, it's in every news story now. Is this what we're calling outrage culture? I mean, I think I think outrage culture is a uh, component, but I'm going to get into it. You all might right. be wondering, listener, what in the world is a moral panic? Well, uh, a few years ago, we did an episode on the satanic panic. Episode 13, in fact... Uh, the title is Your Fave is Satanic. So the Satanic Panic is when parents, schools, um, and church ins- groups, church groups uh, all kinds of institutions, uh, suddenly went to war with D&D, He-Man, some cases Star Wars, and uh, Twisted Sister. Yeah, Ninja Turtles. Ninja Turtles. We didn't really touch on, like, I mean, we, we, we touched on how it started, but we didn't really explore it in depth. And the story about it is actually really heartbreaking because yeah. it was based on something called the um, the McMartin family scandal uh, or the McMartin school scandal. And um, a child had accused one of their teachers of a sexual assault. This child reported it to his mom. His mom took it to the authorities and it just kind of spiraled from there. There were trials. Children were taken out of their homes. People were sent to jail. Uh, and it lasted a long time, and it's actually one of the longest uh, court cases in American history. I didn't know that. And what's heartbreaking about it is, first of all, the woman who initially reported it, turns out she had schizophrenia. And it was all based on a lie. And like also just like horrible uh, interrogation tactics. Like they interviewed, I think, like 300 kids. Right. And they gave, like, and I understand, like, they did, like, a lot of, like, leading questions. Yes. Yes. A lot of leading questions and just, like, bizarre things. One thing I remember that I actually thought was really funny and I thought it was really smart that this lawyer did this where he laid out a set of photos in front of a child witness in the middle court and he asked him to to pick out you know one of these satan worshipping rapists and he he pointed at a picture and the lawyer picked it up and it was Chuck Norris <laughs> don't let QAnon know about that <laughs> they might Run with that. I bet Chuck Norris believes QAnon. Well, <laughs> he has to to get the heat off of himself, man. He's got to pretend that he's one of them. I mean, that's what Kevin Sorbo's doing, bro. Kevin Sorbo and Chuck Norris in league together. They are Wayfair spokespeople. <laughs> that's what I heard. Keep an eye out for the Taylee cabinet, okay? This is terrible. Because you know someone's going to like come across this through some kind of a weird algorithmic search. I know. And some cute person's like, they know. They're going to start counting the number like, you got 17 DVDs of the same color behind you. 17 means, right? Like, they're going to, you know, your, your, your guy, your captain, the old man of the sea is going to be seen as code. This is actually Q. That's him. <laughs> What's that? I, uh... Another drop? Oh, that's kind of Sam Berkowitzy. I don't like that. That's 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 unsettling. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, satanic panic is was more than just you, you know Christians coming down on everything that was cool. It was like a a an awful miscarriage of justice uh, I, that ruined it's lives. QAnon. Yeah, I mean, I would say it was worse than QAnon because of how much it affected, uh, you know, the court system and stuff. Rather than being ripped apart by someone's paranoia, the state was ripping apart families based on things that they had found right found and that's what a moral panic is and and we're going to kind of just kind of go into the specifics of what the anatomy of a moral panic 
is so that you, our listeners and viewers, can be more aware and vigilant of these things that are happening. And also, um, I'm like fascinated with the whole thing. So should we touch on the fact that you and I both come from a background very, very shaped by two major moral panics? Yeah. Because we were, you know, the satanic panic and, well, three, if you think about, because there was the response, you know, there was the panic that re resulted from the kidnapping of Adam Walsh, right? So this, like, oh, yeah, I have this whole cult of safety that. thing that, that started. Yeah. But Stranger also danger. the panic that was issued, that was initiated when Tipper Gore listened to some music and <laughs> suddenly we had these black and white stickers on everybody's CDs. Yeah. Thanks to Prince. <laughs> we're gonna talk about that one day i think we should talk about that for music mayhem this year about, probably that'd be fun and also how those labels are actually kind of cool looking now they definitely became like a badge of honor yeah <laughs> at some point i mean it looks cool on a t-shirt if you ask me totally I, I, that t-shirt existed when we were kids mm -hmm. um uh yeah so there there was that there's satanic panic there's a whole stranger to anything adam walsh uh, I mean, Columbine, uh, kids in trench coats and comic boots. I remember in high school, I had some friends who were sent home because uh, they tucked their pants into their combat boots. Yeah, I had a friend. My friend Eric got that criticism, too. And yeah. his combat boots were given to him by his brother who was in the Marines. And his brother was like, this is how you wear them. Yeah. And so, like, Eric, who looked up to his brother, was just, like, devastated when the administrators at our school was, like, trying to you know, tell him that he had to, you know, he was basically going to try to send him home for it, that. But yeah, that, that's, that's the thing. And, you know, back in the nineties, combat boots weren't like a, weren't like a weird thing for teenagers to wear. That was, I mean, that was the style. And all well, of a sudden and, it was like an indicator of like a mass shooter. Right. Well, and it's, it's, you know, something kind of fascinating about it too, is that the, the Columbine thing was sort of a continuation with the panic that people had around like people like Marilyn Manson. Right. Because you remember, like, when Marilyn Manson first came on the scene, like, there were all these rumors about him. And I remember there was this rumor. I don't know if this one got to you when, you know, when you were in Orlando, but that when he came to do his concert in Orlando, he was planning on throwing a grenade into the crowd. Do you remember that? No. Hearing that? There was, that was, we were told that at our school, that there were, you know, they had heard that Marilyn Manson was going to throw a live, was going to throw a grenade into the crowd and kill a bunch of people as part of his <laughs> show and so they were telling us that we shouldn't be going to a Marilyn Manson concert wow like they, they came over the intercom for our morning announcements the youth pastor came on in order to share that information and then of course we had this one kid at our school who was you know every school has that kid mm -hmm. and uh, that kid was walking the hallways immediately after the announcements at the top of his lungs singing beautiful people <laughs> <laughs> um, you know but yeah, so there was like in the lead up to Columbine, there was all this like fear and panic around Marilyn Manson, and then the, and then that happened, and then there was this claim that the, that Dylan Cleveland and Eric Harris were fans of Marilyn Manson. Yeah, which they weren't. And they weren't. Yeah, it's they like they liked that Rammstein. Yeah, they liked that Rammstein though. <laughs> they did. Uh, so I'll tell the one. The one thing is uh, they they introduced me to Rammstein. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so okay, moral panics. Uh, what is a moral panic? Well, let me tell you. There's a 1970 book called Folk Devils and Moral Panics, The Creation of the Mods and the Rocker by Stanley Cohen. And Stanley Cohen describes it as a conditioned episode person or group of persons 
that emerged to become defined as a threat to, to societal values and interests. I just I couldn't help but notice that, the, and I didn't realize we could have made jokes about this earlier, but um, the, the term mods is in the title there. Mods! We've come full circle. Here's, a, here's an interesting little tidbit for you. Okay. Um, you know the movie Saturday Night Fever? Yes. Do you know that the story that it's based on is completely fabricated? I didn't even know it was so, based on a report. Yeah, so this guy wrote this story about the disco clubs in um, the Bronx. I, if I remember correctly, he was sort of like running up on a deadline and had nothing. And so he just read some stuff about mod culture hmm. in Britain and transferred it to disco culture. That's funny. Oh, my gosh. That's and amazing. And it gave birth to the whole disco culture thing. Like in popular popular culture, because disco culture, of course, was like it was like gay dudes. Like that's what that's what disco culture was. It was like gay people and like, you know, um, yeah. I think I think um, I think various like you know brown people groups and things like that were were part of it because it, it fit within their you know because disco was based on various types of Latin American music traditions and things like that. But it wasn't anything like how Saturday Night Fever put it out to be. But like, and I think that kind of also you know instituted a bit of a moral panic right this concern Probably. of what our kids are doing at these clubs mm. um so there's connections there with the mod culture and all of that i don't know if the movie detroit rock city is to be believed uh the moral panic was centered around kiss <laughs> Well, everybody did have a big thing about Kiss. Uh, <laughs> Nights in Satan's service. Speaking of which, I uh, I recently introduced Kiss to my children. Really? And which yeah. song was that? Oh, totally. It was a rock and roll all night. Okay. Um, all right. I was singing it or something, and um, my wife had no idea that was Kiss. <laughs> really? <laughs> but, you know, within our the kind of world we grew up in, JP, that evangelical world, like, Kiss is like, they're scary, right? You know, yeah. You know, in your mind, you're sort of you, you you think that they're more like Cannibal Corpse or something. You don't think that they're up there or, like singing Detroit Rock City or rock and roll all night party every day, right? Yeah. So um, I was singing it or whatever, and I said to Kate, I was like, "Yeah, it's a Kiss song." She's like, "What?" I was like, "Yeah." And then so I said, "All right, I'm gonna play the video for the boys to see because they, they 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 would sing this." Like Ford was singing it the other night, like trying to go to bed. And so I put it on, and he actually got scared of Gene Simmons. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably like, a good thing, though. That's that's. Scary. Yeah, that's that's probably a good thing though. I think everyone should be scared of Gene Simmons. Yeah, I used to have a uh, I used to have a McFarlane toys uh, Gene Simmons action figure. Nice, that's cool. I remember those. I I, I was into Kiss because mostly because I knew it irritated the people I grew up with. When I discovered Kiss and Black Sabbath, I come to that point to realize that they weren't that bad. Yeah, but I've been told that they were terrifying, awful music, and I and also the, the first music time I isn't that good. <laughs> Well, the first time I listened to the first time I listened to Black Sabbath, it was Iron Man. Yeah. The first song I ever heard. And I was like, the song about time travel. How is this demonic? <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. You know, and, and then um, I listened to Kiss and I was like, oh, this is I think I saw a video for party or for um, rock and roll all night. And I remember when I bought the Kiss album from the music store at the West Oaks Mall in Orlando, my mom, I, I kind of tried to slip it past my mom. I was in the car with uh, the pastor's sons and my mom is like, you bought Kiss is their greatest hits. Yeah. And I said. Yeah, and she's like, I was like, yeah, I buy Kiss. She's like, well, why don't you? Let's, if you're if you're so proud of buying Kiss, why don't you put it on? She's gonna laugh when she hears the story. But she's like, 
She's like, well, if you're so proud about Kiss, why don't you just put it on the radio for all of us to hear? And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and so she put it on. Of course, first song is Rock and Roll All Night Party Every Day. And she goes, oh, she's like, oh I know this song. <laughs> if we had really played this right, we should have done this episode with Kiss Makeup on. Oh, Starman, I call it. Uh, that's cool. I'm I'm cool with Space Ace. He's my favorite. We're playing five big shows in five days. So if you rock and roll, why why don't you just sit in the corner, huh? Go on. Nah, nobody nobody likes Peter Chris. Nobody, not even Peter Chris wants to be Peter Chris. Anyway, it's it's interesting that you bring that up though, Chuck, about how uh, it uh, Kiss turned out to be not so bad because one of the indicators or two of the indicators of a moral panic or I guess you say they're sort of interchangeable, is that the threats are either completely imaginary or seriously exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the perpetrators or scapegoats of a moral panic are referred to by Cohen in his book as folk devils. So an example of folk devils would be, I guess, the goth subculture of the late 90s and early 2000s. It came under an intense scrutiny after the mm-hmm. Columbine massacre. After the 9-11 attacks, Muslims were had become a folk devil. And I think right now, in this current moment in time, the Antifa is probably a pretty good example of a folk devil. Yep. Yeah. Well, we also shouldn't discount the, the treatment of the queer community during the AIDS Yeah, oh, that's, that's very true. Oh, my gosh. I remember that, dude. Nickelodeon was talking about it. And, mm-hmm. like, I remember they Nickelodeon had their, like their little sort of MTV news <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, Which weirdly also featured Kurt Loder. <laughs> and Kennedy. I uh, but I just remember like being informed by Nickelodeon. It was like, hey, you can't get AIDS from like sharing a pizza. Right. You know? Yeah, I watched some TV movie about a girl who's HIV positive and they were, her and her friend were going to try to share a soda and the friend didn't want to drink after. She's like, you don't catch it that way. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, also, it was kind of awkward. I remember there was like, uh, you don't, you can't get AIDS sharing a bathroom. And there was like a shot of like two kids going into a public restroom and then coming out. I was, it's kind of funny. Like that's, they couldn't, right. they didn't know how to illustrate the show it visually going to the bathroom. <laughs> and they probably did it in that like sped up thing that like. Yeah, probably. Used to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, that was definitely, I mean, oh my gosh, there's a whole movie about it called Philadelphia. Check it out with, uh. Tom Hanks, directed by Jonathan Deming. Yeah, well, and that's, the, I mean, you know, the fact that, I mean, I was just watching something not too long ago when they were talking about the AIDS pandemic and they showed a sign, you know, where they were referring to it as gay cancer. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, it, used to be, it used to be known as the 4-H disease for um, homosexuals, hemophiliacs, heroin users, and Haitians. Really? I had never heard that one before. That's when it first came on the scene because those are the four groups of people who are most susceptible uh, to, to to get it. So it is, you know. So I know we're getting probably a little ahead of ourselves here, but it is interesting that we're seeing this stuff play out, right? We've got a bunch of this stuff happening right now in our society, right? We've got we've got the moral panics around the political situation, the pandemic, mm-hmm. you know, all of that. So totally. Um, so where does the moral panic come from? Um, they usually start with a particular episode or event. And that episode is either real or uh, sometimes imaginary. Uh, a real event would be like, like I mentioned earlier, Columbine or 9-11. An imaginary one would be like the Salem Witch Trials, which was you know, totally fabricated. That there were no witches. <laughs> uh, the McMartin Preschool scandal, like we were talking about the, with the Satanic Panic, that was also not a real event that happened. 
Um, and I think most recently, as far as imaginary events that spark a moral panic, uh, Gamergate. Yeah. I think Gamergate. Yeah. Pizzagate too. Oh my gosh. That's so messed up. Uh, Gamergate, because the whole thing started, it was supposedly uh, about ethics and gaming journalism, right? Because <laughs> the, the what, what started Gamergate was that uh, Zoe Quinn, a video game developer, uh, was sleeping around to get positive reviews on her video game. That was the claim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what started it. Her, her ex-boyfriend speculated and like this, you know, big Mark Zuckerberg style blog post <laughs> yeah that he had suspected that and but people ran with it and they're right. like this is grounds for harassing people on twitter <laughs> about ethics and gaming journalism yeah and the fact that they would okay fine like yeah there are there are there legitimate concerns in the way that gaming journalism works as like you know are there elements that could that you could suggest are almost like payola or whatever to you know boost reviews in order to get people sure yeah. I'm sure it goes on. But they threatened to kill these people. I know. Yeah, it was it was really bad. We <laughs> should do an episode of Gamergate. This is a... I know. I know. It's okay. We're not exactly investigative reporters, you know, like with a PR firm that could protect us. But uh, I think it'd be interesting. We could have uh, Father Fun on for that one. And one that's kind of fuzzy to me, uh, that's not quite imaginary, not quite real, uh, the Hollywood Red Scare. Oh, right. In the 1950s. Because it's like, uh, it's not quite the Salem witch trials. Because the the famous quote was like uh, the Salem that people compared the Salem witch trials to the Red Scare. That's how the, that's what the Crucible came out of. Uh, the big critique, of course, against the Crucible is that you know what there were no witches in the Salem witch trial, right? And while there were no like, I mean, there weren't any sort of you know secret Russian agents sabotaging the government through Hollywood propaganda. There were people who were sympathetic to more leftist causes. Well, uh, and there might have been people who were sympathetic to communist regimes and things like that. But, you know, they weren't like trying to take over the country. They weren't trying to destroy our democracy. They were just, you know, they wanted to get paid for their work because this is during the studio system. Well, um, it's interesting if you think about too how many of these things are still like we're 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 in like a third or fourth generation of the same kind of thing, right? Because the McCarthyistic Red Scare stuff is still with us. Oh yeah, totally. We, we, we've dressed that language up though around like the liberal, you know, the, the the elites and the liberal left and the liberal figures in media and the bias and all of that, that mm -hmm. that's claimed. Um, and you know, and it's it's really the same kind of thing, right? Because they're all socialists. All right. Yeah. Right? We don't say communists. We say socialists. Now. <laughs> yeah. And you know. I was just recently reading up on Lucille Ball, and I was really surprised to learn that she was caught up in the yeah. Red Scare because she apparently had listed her – she had declared herself a communist at some point. Because, and she later said her grandfather, who was like a really well, – apparently well-known communist, um, was like, this is what you need to do. And she was like, okay, Grandpa. Um, and they like tagged her on that. Of course, but there's a question of like maybe she actually was a communist and – so what? <laughs> I mean, she she married a Cuban guy. Uh, I know. Red hair, red scare. Mm -hmm. Oh, she helped get Star Trek started. Exactly. And they had a and they had a rusky on the bridge. 
did you know that uh, It's a Wonderful Life was investigated by the FBI for being um, for supposedly being uh, communist propaganda because well, you know. because of the way of uh, Mr. Potter was portrayed? Look it up on Wikipedia. It's actually very interesting and very funny. Here's another part of the moral panics that I find fascinating. And this is why I think it's become so embedded in our culture, the moral panic. Like I feel like there's like a moral panic every day now. And that's the idea of the moral entrepreneur. The moral entrepreneur claims that the event is one instance of an epidemic or plague and that it is increasing in frequency to a crisis level. And these entrepreneurs are usually journalists or pundits or uh, today internet commentators. So like yeah, Tucker Carlson, mm -hmm. you know, he gets up there and he says, actually, that coup was done by Antifa in disguise. I don't know if he said that. And Matt Gates said it. They're the ones that spread it. You know, they're the ones that take the reports and they bring it into the mainstream. And they kind of, they're the, you know, we were talking earlier while we were sort of riffing about planting that seed, like Inception, or that, that seed of yeah. doubt, that, that idea. And it just kind of spreads. That's what they do. That's the point of a moral entrepreneur. You can't have a moral panic without that guy. Well, and it, it, interesting is we talk about the way it works itself into our culture. I'm, I'm reminded of um, Donald Miller. Christian author who in one of his early 2000s books called Searching for God Knows What recounts this story of how he went to a Christian writers seminar mm -hmm. and the woman who was leading the seminar laid out the formula for a best-selling Christian book and basically the formula is a self-help book and it's this notion that there's a problem mm -hmm. and it's not just a minor problem it's like a world-ending problem. It's a major problem. Your, 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 your ability to be happy, productive, whatever, is completely hampered by the fact this problem exists. Now, you didn't know it exists, but I've got to tell you about it. Here's the thing that's really causing the problems in the world. But now, here's the like three to five steps that you can do to address those problems. So take out the steps piece. That first part, that sounds exactly like what you're talking about here with a moral entrepreneur is someone who's, you know, not going to particularly like in the case of like a Matt Gates or maybe even a Tucker Carlson or whoever, you know, they don't want to face the fact that they may have unleashed a violent mob on the Capitol. So they're going to say like, oh, no, 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 no. It's these other actors, these other people, they're the ones who are really causing the problem. Right. And and so then, you know, so that's what you really need to be paying attention to. Um, and like you said, it puts that seed of doubt in. But ultimately, it's all wrapped up in a very in a in a very capitalistic kind of mindset, right? I mean, again, mm -hmm. entrepreneur is in the word here, so it, yeah. there's an economic element to it, right? So you know, we are we are trying to get you to buy into our idea and buy into our team and our side, and right. why you need to rid the world of this other thing, right? And, and so it, it fits that same kind of formula. Yeah, and it's not just that like there's this this one isolated event that happened. But part of it is that it's happening everywhere and it's coming to you. Right. It's well, gonna happen it, to you tomorrow. You know. Right. If you think about it, it's it's an infomercial. Yeah. Right? The infomercial presents a problem, like a, an everyday annoyance, but it elevates it to like a world ending. I mean, think about like that famous one of the guy who's trying to use a tape measure on the ladder. And he fumbles with the tape measure and he falls off the ladder, right? That, yeah. that suggests that the annoyance of having to use a tape measure while on a ladder rather than, you know, 
inflated to the fact that he could be paralyzed now. He could be dead because he fell off that ladder because he wasn't using the product that we're trying to sell to you. Right. And and I think that that gets into that gets into it too for us as a society and why it's so pervasive because it it leaches into that capitalistic right yeah like of, the supply and demand yeah mm-hmm. you create um, you create the demand by you know creating some cockamamie scheme right well, and you think about it too it, it I mean this <laughs> this gets back to Marx Marxism intensifies <laughs> right oh Marx. You know, Marx somewhere said that a lot of our societies are going to try to get the races to fight among one another when they, in order to distract them from the economic realities they should be united against. You would be rich if it weren't for all this regulation. These people on the left want to force on you right. because they want to they want to tell you how to live your life and how to make your decisions and how to make your money, and they're going to try to get your money that you work hard for. Um, but I, you get what I'm saying. Yeah. The next step. The episode or event has happened. It's been reported. The moral entrepreneur latches onto it and spreads it by saying, hey, this is going to happen to you. This is happening everywhere. Next step is that institutions and powerful agencies take notice, and they now come under intense pressure to respond. Uh, And this is where things, in my opinion, get very dangerous. Uh, People within institutions and agencies are put into position to give support or credence to the panic for self-interested reasons. And it's usually for power status or budget so this is where you know you'd get like big law firms or even the state where they'll try to indict somebody as, as, as like a show of force hey we're still useful you know we can use this event that's spreading everyone's talking about and like you know sort of latch onto that and and use our power uh, to kind of show everyone that we're st- we could still do something right and that we do deserve our power and our budget and our influence so that's to me i think that might be like the actual like very scary part but i also think at the same time i think that uh it can show how strong our institutions are and sometimes these things can can crumble not all moral panics um succeed like some of them fizzle out pretty early and it's usually at this state this state where they try to get you know the state involved or any kind of powerful agency or institution that's usually when you start to see them crumble a little bit. But, you know, moral entrepreneur, gun entrepreneur, he's already made his money. He's going to keep doing it until, you know, something does break through the dam. One aspect of a moral panic is that the harm is usually a result of a conspiracy. And this is also kind of a tactic used to dismiss anyone who would try to debunk the moral panic. Uh, so basically, if someone said, you know, I, I don't think those, um, I don't think Barack Obama is a communist. Oh, really? You sound like one of them. The Pope is not a lizard person. Something only another lizard person would say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so it's used to dismiss rejection. Anyone who opposes calls for action is an unwitting agent of the conspiracy. So it kind of makes it with us. You're against us. Yeah. It makes it foolproof. You can't, you can't critique it. So what are the results of a moral panic? What are the outcomes? How how does it affect our lives, our our institutions? Uh, The outcome of a moral panic can have severe effects on the rule of law and personal liberty. Uh, They can impact public policy and the workings of criminal justice system. 
Politicians and lawmakers often react to moral panics by introducing legislation and regulations that can be unnecessary and wasteful, as well as harmful. When the panic concerns something that does not actually exist, you can have laws that severely restrict people's freedom or impose serious costs on them for no good reason at all. And one instance uh, that I thought was kind of interesting that uh, one of these research papers I was looking at, I'm going to, I got all this from a couple of sources, by the way, I'm going to link into the, in the description. I suggest everyone check them out because it's actually very interesting. And also I want to, I want to take just a moment. Uh, Father Chuck and I might be using some, we'll say, uh, left-leaning language and, and, and sort of approach to this. I, I want to say that um, the main research, the main article I'm using here is actually from a right-wing think tank uh, that has been recently involved in COVID denial and climate change denial. You can't say we're being biased, okay? Right. Well, and let us, let us never forget, <laughs> going back to the parental advisory yes moral panic around you know the content of popular music um that was instigated by the democrats yes it was tipper gore um that was a lefty that was a lefty thing mm -hmm. and um we don't like you know, it and huh we don't like it yeah and it, and it you know and it totally and that's one where i think you could argue that that kind of stuff is what sort of sprung our country toward the right a little bit uh, and why we, you know, why in 2000 we got George W. Bush as president. I mean, aside from some <clears throat> like legally questionable <clears throat> means to make that happen, but yeah, you know. But I think that I mean that that is sort of like what PC culture probably came from, right? Like the or that like the PC culture meme, right? Like if you got PC these you. exactly, we got these PC parents trying to take my Twisted Sister albums away, mm -hmm. and and I know for me that like, that was a big thing. Well, and that, right, that was, I mean, I, I, the things I remember from that time period, too, was I was listening to a lot of talk radio, mm -hmm. you know, Howard Stern yeah. was getting a lot of criticism for being on a publicly, you know, publicly accessible format, right. you know, but Howard Stern's whole thing was, if you don't like it, turn the dial, you don't have to listen to me, yeah. right? And that, that, that sort of, I think, kind of helped inspire a certain libertarian way of thinking for people. I know that I leaned toward libertarian politics as a result of my love of South Park mm -hmm. because of the way that they responded to the the panic around South Park. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, in, in my more, more conservative days, it was definitely not so much policy-driven. I mean, you had your big ones, right? Gay marriage and abortion. That was like... That's basically it. You, you supported those two things. Boom, Republican. What was really driving was like, oh, man, like, you know, I'm, a, I'm big on movies. I love horror films. I, I listen to rock and roll. These liberals trying to take it away from me. Mm -hmm. My video games, my movies. Uh, so, yeah, I get it. Um, and, I, and, and that's the thing I think. In all of this, we have to be very attentive to, uh, you know, it's one, it's one of the things I think on the left, you know, everybody is sort of you know, watching this pandemic unfold over the past year, of course, has been very fascinating because, you know, the stereotypes about the left and the right are true, right? Yeah. This whole like, are people on the left, have people on the left obviously been like trying to sort of nanny state this pandemic? Totally, I, totally. I, I, mm -hmm. Um 
you know, I, there was a study that was done. I saw several months ago where I can't remember which organization did it, but they they basically they wrote the recommendations to various governments to say that based on all of their research, COVID nineteen policy was largely different political sides arguing against each other and none of it was scientific none of it was rooted in anything right you know like i going back to the whole moral entrepreneur and then the, the sort of cost that comes with you know the state and different organizations implementing things based on a moral panic i went to a christian bookstore a couple weeks ago and they made me wear gloves <laughs> like they wouldn't let me in the store until like they put on their gloves for me and i remember thinking like the cdc doesn't recommend this mm-hmm but somewhere someone has told them that unless you do this, you're going to lose business. And so they're doing this big safety theater thing that is no way, shape or form rooted in the science that we currently know about the virus. Right. And but if you question that to certain people, it's like, oh, you don't want people to be safe. You don't want you, you don't want people to be safe. You want us to take risks. And they're like, well, you know, I mean, science allows us to take certain risks like that's kind of the whole thing here. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, and, I, well, and all this talk around all the, you know, the millions of dollars that like New York has blown on the sanitizing of the subway trains, hmm. which there's no science to support anymore that they even need to do that. Right. Um, and you know, but that, but that again is the problem of a political system that one, we don't have any kind of guidance from the federal government. And on top of that, all you want to do is you don't want to look like the guy in charge, right? So you're responding more to the politics of the person you don't like. And so you're like, well, you're trying to say nobody should pay attention to the virus. Well, we're going to overdo it. Yeah, which I think is becoming – that's going to become even more prevalent in the coming years where like every vote we cast is going to be just a way to hurt the other side instead of like to push something that you believe in. Yeah, well, and and, and it's all rooted in this kind of mentality that we see of like, you know, the – you know, the rednecks in certain parts, I mean, I shouldn't use that term. It's very disparaging, but you know what I mean? Red, the rednecks, I know are very proud of being redneck. If we're talking about the same people, I think you're talking about not even really rednecks are just role-playing as them anyway. So the Walmart in Mississippi gets Tesla chargers. Mm-hmm. And so these guys now go out and they get bigger diesel trucks and they park their diesel trucks in the Tesla charger lot, <laughs> Yeah, which are out, in the, out of the way of, you know, usually in the back lot. So they're not bothering people. Right. Um, and it's like, why? Yeah. Because there's a sense of panic that that's somehow going to change your way of life, that you feel threatened by an electric car. All right. So that's basically what a moral panic is. I basically give you a rundown of the anatomy of a moral panic. And I was going to kind of give a, an example of this last point about when uh, a panic concerns something that does not actually exist. You can have laws that severely restrict people's freedoms. There was... Um, a case involving uh, switchblades. So the supposed increase in criminal activity and violence in youth, particularly black and Latino youth during the 1950s, that the media portrayed as a changing of middle-class morals and values created panic among the white middle-class society. Uh, Magazines and film identified certain elements of culture, such as the switchblade, as the cause of the rise in crime. Uh, the switchblade was portrayed as a dangerous tool being utilized at a significantly increasing rate by juveniles across the country. For example, 
The popular musical West Side Story was made into a Hollywood film during this era, and the juvenile gang members in the movie threatened other gang members with with a switchblade. We all know. Puerto Ricans and Italians. (laughs) Well, no, it was was Italians and and, and Irish. Or no, Puerto Ricans and Irish, but the Italians were playing playing Puerto Ricans. That's right. Okay. Because they're super racist. Those socialist Hollywood types. Yes. Um. So the media emphasized the dangerous nature of the switchblade by manipulating the pre-existing societal fears of increased crime and juvenile delinquency. However, in the decades after these laws were passed, there was little to no evidence of an actual increase in crime due to switchblade use. And uh, with a panic society, politicians and policymakers found it fit to initiate legislation to ban switchblades. And the Switchblade Knife Act, a law passed in 1958, federally limited the manufacturing and transportation of switchblades that's what can happen like we were talking about the satanic panic that you know that had real life consequences people were were truly hurt by that it wasn't just you know you know our episode we're very light about it we're we're talking about how it affected us and you know our parents wouldn't have let us have certain toys but you know in reality outside of our own circles people were their lives were being ruined um and you had moral entrepreneurs writing books like The Devil's Toy Chest <laughs> that perpetuated these lies. The seduction of the innocent. Yeah. Um, uh, so are there any moral panics going on today? Well, I talked about Gamergate a little bit. Uh, we touched on Antifa. Uh, one, I think, I think is kind of quite interesting, is free speech on college campuses. Ooh. And I always found that kind of puzzling. Because you and I went to university, Chuck, and I don't remember that being a problem. Like, mm-hmm. I don't remember, like... Well, we went to Christian University. Yeah, it's, it was a private university. The, the free speech thing is that, like, more and more people are being policed for teaching certain subjects and not including races or genders and uh, that professor gets fired or something or... Well, having having recently served in in you know academia, you know primary school academia, but having really you know just you know last year having been a school chaplain at a prestigious private school, um, you know we were tangentially connected to those sorts of things, and you know the I mean this, I don't there weren't any students really getting worked up about it, but you definitely saw the evidence. I you know I guess the question is is how big of a problem is it really? Yeah. The there was a professor at Florida Atlantic University. Who in 2013, I think, he taught a class where he talks about the importance of words and symbols. And he does a thing where he has students write the word Jesus on a piece of paper. They put it on the ground and he asks the students to step on it. And now he does this because it's meant to it's meant to enforce the idea that it's not just a word to many people and that the act and that, you know, there, that most people in the room are not going to be able to bring themselves to do it because mm-hmm. it's disrespectful and, and whatever, even though it's not like a religious image, it's just a word written on a piece of paper. And so he uses that as a way to illustrate, you know, why, you know, he wants people to talk about their, their resistance to it or, or their willingness to do it or whatever. He'd been doing this for years with no incident until one day a student complained to him about it. The student made a big stink about it, and he lost his job at Florida Atlantic University hmm. for having done this. 
he was invited by the youth minister at Holy Trinity Church where I work to come and speak to our youth group. So I got to meet him. And he shared with us letters that he had received from people around the nation calling for his death. <laughs> and he said, and so he said, so, you know, he's like, here I am on a university campus teaching a school teaching a, a lesson that I've never had a problem with until one kid suddenly he had a problem with it. And he went to the press with it and created this whole, this whole outrage about how dare. And then, and then this guy was reported in the news as being a professor who demands that teachers step on the name of Jesus. And he's like, I don't demand it. I've never demanded it. <laughs> and he says, and, and really the whole point of it is to reinforce the importance of the name of Jesus and why he's like, I'm a Christian and I do this because I want to, you know, use it as a way to talk about the importance of, you know, names and religious symbolism and, and all this. Right. Um, well, you know, what's, what's kind of funny and I'm just sort of realizing this as you're explaining the story to me, the free speech on college campus issue is kind of in itself a moral panic. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like a moral panic about moral panics. There are moral panics happening all across college campuses and we got to do something about it. Yeah, because the, 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 the professors are really concerned about the fact that the students, you know, like, I mean, this it, the, the whole thing started years ago with the, you know, the expectation that there be trigger warnings put on text that kids are expected to read mm -hmm. because, you know, they're, you know, people who've experienced real trauma um, need to be, you know, let uh, made aware uh, beforehand that they might get triggered from reading a text. Um, I, is that a fair conversation? Maybe I don't know, but I think it, it depends on the con on the context, right? You know? But it's but what's happened is there have been incidences on campuses where students have gotten really upset that a teacher would require them to read certain texts mm -hmm. that they know are going to trigger them psychologically or whatever. And, you know, the whole point of education is to challenge people's preconceived notions and, and, and different things like that, you know? So I think, you know, so how widespread a problem is it? I don't know, but I think that that's where this whole free speech on college campuses thing started. And it kind of, is, it kind of has snowballed from there where I think we've got students who make the, you know, they're making the case that, you know, they're trying to say that, certain ideas or certain topics or certain things might not need to be not, might not need to be part of the curriculum whereas the, the 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 faculty are responding by saying that well you know our job is to challenge your worldview and you're not always going to like what you encounter but that's the world you're not always going to like it right um and so you get into these you know you get into these these circular arguments and like I said, you know, when we talk about the, the anatomy of a of a moral panic, the question of, you know, is this a really small group of people on college campuses that are making a stink that we've that the media has allowed to turn into mm -hmm. like that? This is a rampant problem on college campuses or or what? So, I mean, I, I, I don't know that. But like I said, I don't I don't remember it being a thing, but, you know, we also. We also didn't grow up with this wussy uh, snowflake generation that <laughs> needs to be coddled, um, you know, that Johnny Lawrence needs to <laughs> karate train the, 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 the timidity out of them. Yeah, 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 totally. Well, you know, it's one um, of those things. I think, I think the thing about free speech on college campuses is it can't be quite quantifiable. So how do you present evidence that it's something that is a actual, like, threat to our society? You know what I mean? 
yeah and i think I mean, that's I think... what makes it a moral panic really you know right right and i mean i'd have to I, it's been a while since i've since i've really been up on the news with with what's supposedly going on with it yeah but i mean i am concerned around the idea that the fact that an entire generation of people has grown up with a social media environment that has allowed them to you know segregate themselves off into their little ideological bubbles where they're never real, you know where, where their views are just constantly reinforced and very and very rarely challenged and if they're challenged they're very gently challenged they're yeah. not you know right and and then then expecting their education to then do the same right you know um you know is there is there a fair conversation around the idea that the canon of western literature ought to be updated to include different voices yeah sure mm-hmm. i agree with that uh the movie cuties i'm just being aware of the fact that i'm a priest <laughs> continue so netflix released a film called uh its american title was cuties it's French title was Mignonis, which I don't know. I don't know what it translates as. It's a film that was directed by a Senegalese woman, a Senegalese Muslim woman. Um, oh crap, I didn't do the summary. I'm an, I'm I'm such a bad researcher. Look it up. It's all over the news. <laughs> the big controversy around it was that this film was exploiting minors. Uh, because it's a movie about a basically a young woman who who is who is growing up in a traditional Muslim family in France, uh, discovers a dance troupe of young girls her age, and uh, where they dance very suggestively in these uh, competitions, and she kind of does that to sort of rebel against her family, and to uh, basically age herself up. So this was very controversial when it came out. Um, uh, no thanks in part to the thumbnail used to advertise the movie, which I think is, I, I think to me that is where the real controversy is it, not, not a good look. Um, they did Netflix did change it, thankfully. Um, but you know, you have this movie where these young girls, minors who were dancing suggestively and that, and that just ring all the bells, right? And so that spread like wildfire all over the internet. That there's that Netflix was harboring this was was harboring child exploitation entertainment. The the filmmaker was interviewed many times, and I haven't seen the movie personally because I don't have time to watch movies, um, unless I know they're great. Um, <laughs> but you know, she made this movie as a way to tell everybody that hey we are making our children grow up too fast and sexualizing themselves far too early. That's the point of the movie. Um, but people can't get past the fact, oh, but you filmed it, you filmed it, you know? And they're like, well, I'm a filmmaker, it's a movie. Yeah. And it was seen as an excuse, and there are many moral entrepreneurs, people I actually follow on YouTube, like commentators. I, I follow like comedic commentators and stuff on YouTube who do like kind of funny monologues and stuff and there were a couple who were very prominent who did sort of special takes on on cuties and they're it was actually like really cringy because it was very uh i hate to use the term virtue signaling 
<laughs> but it kind of was that. And I think it has a lot to do with, and I've said this many times, with sort of like our own media literacy. If you read any review of the movie from like a professional film critic who understands movies and how to watch a movie, they all say the same thing. The controversy is exaggerated. This is actually a very good film and everyone should see it. Now, it may not, it may not be for everybody. Like if you have your own sort of sensibilities, if you're uncomfortable by it, you know, sure. But this is not exploitation. And the reason why it's not exploitation, and this is one of those things I mentioned earlier, how I think our, our institutions are actually uh, stronger uh, than I thought they were. Uh, a town in Texas tried to indict Netflix uh, over this movie, um, claiming that they were harboring you know, child exploitation. Um, but it didn't hold up because they had to prove beyond a shadow of, of a doubt that the filmmaker who made the movie was their intention was to exploit children and you can't do that there was no way to do it and it fell and it fell apart yeah and it kind of it sort of reminds me of you know sort of the opposite direction of the way people treat various film adaptations of nebikov's lolita exactly yes where people seem to forget that the movie that the movie is condemning right. the relationship with Lolita, but it doesn't help that like years ago, HBO did their own version of it or whatever. And they like made it. The, the advertisements were very, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, titillating, mm -hmm. um, you know, and there's, you know, people seem to miss what the point of that movie is. Right. Um, I mean, that's kind of what happens with satire. Not that this is satire, but it's what happens when people do make things that are trying to convey something that folks just don't have the objectivity to properly understand. Yeah. Um, I've not seen this said movie. Yeah, me neither. Makes me feel weird to say it. Of course, I'm thinking of like the, the little oranges I buy my kids. Um <laughs> Yeah. Um, because I don't know a movie about a 12 year old girl liberating herself through suggestive dancing is just not the kind of movie I'm going to like hurry up to watch. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, but I do remember some of the outrage about it. I remember thinking like, do, are people this dense that they can't tell that a movie that's criticizing? Well, I'll tell you, here's one, uh, here's one I can talk about. Um, and that is the, uh, the, the left's reaction to, uh, the Scarlett Johansson ghost in the shell oh. <laughs> and the fact that she, to this day gets criticized for playing Motoko Kusanagi yeah. in that movie, when the movie goes out of its way to comment on the fact that this white man run company has stolen every aspect of her identity mm -hmm. to make her into this Western looking robot person. Like that's the movie makes that point in the climax. Now, is it as good as the anime? I don't know. It's been a long time since the anime, but I enjoyed the movie very much. And I thought it was quite apparent that the movie is condemning and using, using this as a way to condemn the practice of like, you know, they're, they're so is Scarlett Johansson, playing a Japanese woman. Yes, but not like in a yellow face kind of way. Right. Like she's playing a woman who 
they took her brain out of her Japanese body and put it into a synthetic life form. And like, that's what it's about. And it's about the fact they've stolen her humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, like I thought that was pretty apparent, but anytime I bring, I, I brought this up on like birth movies, death boards or anything. Like I got like yelled at for, <laughs> for like, you know, whatever. And um, so I think there's sometimes like, it just gets too close for people. Yeah. Um, I think there's also a similar thing to the criticism around the movie Aloha with um, Cameron Crowe um, casting Emma Stone as um, yeah. a, as a part Chinese person. I will say it, it's one of those things that living in Hawaii now, I don't see as much a problem with what he was doing. But I think that I'll, but it's such a it's such a narrow Hawaii thing that main, mainland audiences aren't going to get it. Right. And so it's lost. And so he probably would have been better to not have cast her in that role. But I, I think the more egregious thing about that movie is that it's actually just kind of boring and not that good um, <laughs> as a movie. Um, I will say, you know, it's another one we could have talked about and we maybe spent a second or two on is um, the moral panic. This would be good to have Matt around for the moral panic around Rob Bell's love wins. Oh, yeah. You know, before the book even came out, the press was saying he denies the existence of hell. Right. Yeah. And the the thir- third chapter of the book is entitled Hell, and it's all about how hell does exist. And his actual point is that hell might not be permanent. Because, <laughs> hmm. um, like, I had I had a guy – I worked at a bookstore at the time, and I had a guy come in, this um, – this Methodist minister and the, the accent I'm going to do impersonating this guy, JP is not meant to make fun of him. It is a, an attempt at being an accurate capturing of the way the man sounded. Okay. Um, I just want to make that clear to everybody. But so I'm working in the bookstore. It was a Saturday and this guy came in his Methodist minister. And he's from a rural area of Virginia or Maryland, one of the two. And he's, he slams the book on the, on the counter. Now, I bought Love Wins the day it came out. I pre-ordered it. I got the first run of it. I read it in like a night. So like I had, I, you know, so I had the book in mind, you know, by the time this guy came here, I'd read the whole thing. Guy slams it down on the counter and is all like, it pains me to have to buy this book. And I was like, why? And he said, because this Rob Bell here, he's denying the existence of hell. He said, no, the only reason I'm reading this book is because I got a blog. And my <laughs> readers, they want me to weigh in on this book. And I said, well, I just finished it last night. And, you know, actually, I opened the book. I was like, right here, chapter three, it's, it's got a whole chapter on hell. He doesn't deny the existence of hell. No. No. I've read enough about this man to know he is a universalist. Oh, Lord. And he just like, and he just like went on. I was like, okay, we're done here. You know, how, here, you know, 11 bucks, bye. Um, you know, but like, I, I mean, I remember like Francis Chan wrote a response to, he wrote a response book about, you know, right. all of it. I mean, you know, I mean, evangelicals basically kicked Rob Bell out of their ranks over that book. Oh, I know. And it didn't help that he showed up on Oprah, too, who's the Antichrist, right? Right. One of many. <laughs> um, you know, and so... And so I just I just remember when I read that book, I was like, man, the controversy on this is way overblown. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But most people know that they're not going to actually go about go out and buy the book and read the book. It, it is a good uh, sort of litmus test for our, our podcast, though, Chuck, because I have noticed that whenever I tell people about our podcast, people, we know, one of the first thing, things I mentioned is that we we once interviewed Rob Bell. Mm-hmm. 
And I get one of two reactions. One is like, oh, that's really interesting. I'd like to listen to that. And two is like, oh, well, he's a piece of crap. You can tell they don't want to say that I'm not going to listen to your podcast, but they're, they're, they're thinking it. You interviewed the devil. <laughs> he was on your podcast. Now he's in your brain. We talked about surfing and chips. Eric Estrada is <laughs> yeah. the prince of the darkness. <laughs> you know it. I know it. All right. Epilogue time. Okay. How to recognize a moral panic. Um, Go online. <laughs> reporting rumor, anecdote, hearsay, and accusation as though they are facts. Example. Everyone knows that Cobra Kai kids drink blood pile drive labradoodles and turn into skeletons at night okay okay here's another way making quantitative claims without specific figures to support example there's a cobra kai dojo on every single corner of the san fernando valley you all know that's not true there's only one <sighs> claims of the existence of a conspiracy without any actual people being named Cobra Kai has infiltrated the All-Valley Karate Championship Tournament by planting Cobra Kai-affiliated individuals on the board of directors. It's not true, folks. In fact, Daniel LaRusso is on that board. Okay? Moralistic language aimed at an unpopular or identifiable minority group. Cobra Kai kids are brainwashed, militant, narcissistic, and violent, and they should be reported to the authorities whenever they come near the mall. I, well, I mean... You gotta admit that the uh, that the crease version of Cobra Kai kids that, that kind of fits. Nope, moral panic. <laughs> Listen, Crease has a very tortured past. He's he's a what? Vietnam he's a Vietnam veteran who suffers from PTSD. When he brought in all of those bullies, though, <laughs> come on, they weren't bullies. They were adults. They were They're coaches and two assistant basketball coach. <laughs> Okay, so that was my little funny up. Uh, closing thoughts. Uh, my advice in the face of a moral panic, if you happen to find yourself in one after identifying these things that we've, we've laid out, remain vigilant, be pliable, be slow to react, look for calm, serious arguments and figures that can actually be supported. That's it, man. Right. Media literacy. Media literacy is good. Read lots of books. If you if you if you got people saying things, to basically a glorified version of being like, well, everybody knows that. Yeah. You know, people are saying. And we've talked about like being like knee jerk reaction. Like you don't have to have an opinion about every single thing you hear. You know, sleep on it a little bit. <laughs> Maybe look for a more calm perspective on something you I mean, heard about. You know, I'm 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 very rarely on social media these days because I took all of my apps off my phone, and I got to say. I feel less inclined to have an opinion on most things. I know you mentioned that in the episode where we talked about that. Which episode was that, by the way, when we talked about? I think we were talking about. Um... Was this when they they denied our application to join the collective? Yeah, Federation? that's the one. Conspiracy theories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So you know, I'm still not on social media really. I mean, I, I, every now and then, you know, Mike, Mike Heath, of course, our 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 our, our patron. Um, he, uh, you know, he's seen me comment on things cause it's funny cause you know, twice a week I, I put things on Facebook for church related stuff. So I always, you know, whatever's kind of first. And so Mike is nine times out of 10 first thing I see, it's either you or Mike or my, 
first two people I see. So that's how I usually comment on things. But um, I do, I do feel, yeah, it's been, it's been a couple months and I feel very less inclined to have to have an opinion on everything going on. You don't have anyone vying for your, for your attention. Yeah. I mean, the thing, I mean, the funny thing is I literally have a bully pulpit. Yeah. You know, like I really have one, like they gave me one when I started here and I just don't feel the need to do it as much to just, you know, be like, Mm -hmm. of course I have a microphone and I have a podcast and I can be like, my important white man thoughts. Here you go. (laughs) Yeah. I was just thinking like how, you know, the idea of a moral panic being discussed by a priest, a police officer and a filmmaker over a podcast, you know, we're all kind of cogs in that machine. You know, we're, we're used people of our, of our occupation and ilk are used to spread moral panic. And I mean, think about, think about the moral panic of dancing, the scourge of dancing (laughs) that affected that little town in footloose. Yeah. (laughs) The preacher, you know, got up there and drove home the, the problems. God bless him. Uh, You know, it's, you know, so yeah, you're right. We are, we are three people who would typically be cogs in this machine using a medium for, perpetuating it and we're trying to be like yeah no nah, don't do that right right that's a tutor be reasonable horn. yeah to our 67 audience members <laughs> hey man that's awesome <laughs> and, our, and don't forget don't forget our, our nsa guy yeah our one nsa listener and our do we think it's a guy or a girl yeah i don't want to misgender anybody i don't want to misgender anybody either no, but i don't want to assume i kind of feel a little bit though that if we have a if we have an assigned NSA person, that if it was a woman after a while, she'd be like, okay, no, no, I can't do this. <laughs> we did it. We won. Um, One NSA agent at a time. We didn't even talk about the moral panic that is the war on Christmas, JP. Oh, and that's that's perfect one because that was all created by Bill O'Reilly, a moral entrepreneur, if there ever was one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But maybe we should save that for actual they Christmas. They got the green cups. Right. <laughs> the green cups, brother. The green cups that hate Jesus. Do you know who came up with Happy Holidays? I shouldn't say guess. That, I shouldn't say he like, came up with it, but he made it popular. Bing Crosby. <laughs> oh. On Happy his holiday. Yes, exactly. That mm-hmm. song was at the end of every single one of his Christmas specials in the fifties. Yeah, I mean, you you know who never said Merry Christmas? Who? Jesus. <laughs> He said Happy Hanukkah. Yeah. And apparently Exodus is not actually taking the Christ out of Christmas. It's just like the Greek version right, of Christ, the right? Key, like it, yeah, the key. Uh, yeah. The, the first letter of Christmas, yeah. It's just shortening it. Like it's stupid. You know, it, let's give Donald, let's give the outgoing president one little nugget of credibility or, or something right now. And that is because of all the controversies that were surrounding him during November, December, and the, and the fact that he lost the election— Mm-hmm. We didn't really have a war on Christmas this year. That's true. We had an armistice. We had a war on democracy instead. <laughs> <laughs> a war on reason. Yeah. Uh, pour one out for the greatest Twitter account of all time coming to an end. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought I would live to see the funniest day in American history, Chuck, but I, but I was. It was right there when it happened. They took his Twitter. Yeah. All right. All right.
that's it. That's it for today, folks. Uh, we We're hope done. you enjoyed this episode, uh, this very deep episode of, about moral panics. Uh, maybe go watch some more Cobra Kai after this. And, uh, Just binge all three seasons again. Just do it. Watch the Honest trailer. The Honest trailer is very funny. I've been meaning to do that, yeah. Is it weird that ever since our episode, like, I've just been thinking a lot about Karate Kid. I just want to watch the movies again. Like, it's just... I do, too. I can't wait to talk about Karate Kid on the show again. <laughs> Can we just turn this into a Karate Kid podcast? Sure. Cobra. I, I, there's already a YouTube channel called Cobra Kai Theory, which that's how you know a show has become popular when one of those theory channels pops up. Yeah, what? What is it? There's that? the there's that podcast I recently heard about the Star Wars podcast where they go like through each episode, like each one, like minute by minute. Oh, I don't know about that. I know there are other ones like they did that to the movie Heat, and their final episode they were able to get Michael Mann to come on and talk about it. That's cool. Yeah, I want Michael Mann on the podcast. Yeah, dude. Hey, Michael uh, Mann, if you're listening, I'll I'll work on that. I'll okay. draft an email. But, but I want I want us filmed in digital because. <laughs> He does amazing things with digital. I mean, we do for ourselves in digital. Um, yeah, but we don't. You don't see the lines, and that's <laughs> that's the key with the Michael Mann film. You need the scan. Um, lines. Collateral, collateral is an absolute masterpiece. Yeah, shot on Betamax. <laughs> Not really, but it looks like it. <laughs> can so, JP? Can you please be like? Can you please maybe, maybe as a filmmaker, you should make your knit like you know we've got. You know, Tarantino is all like, you know, old school thing like that. Make your niche just like shooting on Betamax <laughs> and only releasing your movies on um, HD DVD <laughs> or laser. The whole thing is nothing but like dead formats. I'm going to bring back laser disc mini disc, the, the new the new vinyl <laughs> mini disc. Laser disc is great because like it wasn't just one disc. You had to watch like four of them. So you had four giant discs. Oh, I know. You used to watch the, Star uh, Wars. The, good, the Goodwill here uh, has quite an impressive collection of laser discs yeah everybody stay safe uh and enjoy yourselves we'll see you and get again. that get that vaccine if you're eligible do it yes please get the vaccine we'll see you again next week good journey good journey <laughs>